Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. One of the hot topics in health right now is the microbiome. You know, all those tiny little critters that live in us and on us, and it turns out play a huge role in keeping us healthy or not. And it's a fascinating new field of study. And of course, there's a lot of nonsense going along with it around how we have to feed our microbiome and give them bone broth and all sorts of stuff. And the science is really developing a pace but there's a lot of nonsense as well. So I wanted to get to the bottom of what the science really says right now about our microbiome, about how we keep it healthy, and what we know about it so far. So, of course, I turn to Dr. Milton Mills. He's a repeat guest on the podcast. He knows more about just about everything than anybody else I know. I can kind of, you know, throw a dart at a topic and call Milton on it, and he would uh, be erudite and uh, exhaustive. And of course, this is kind of his, his wheelhouse. I heard him give a talk on the microbiome at the Peapod Conference in Raleigh in May, and I was kind of blown away, but I was standing in the back and I couldn't hear too well, and I couldn't really take notes. So I kind of wanted him to tell it to me all over again. And so this time, you get to listen in. So without further ado, Dr. Milton Mills, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm uh, happy to be back. Yeah, so um, you gave a talk a couple months ago that I attended on the microbiome, and I was sitting in the back and I was scribbling notes. But unfortunately, my handwriting sucks, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember what you said, but I remember that I was just being blown away by what we now know about the microbiome and what we can do about it. So, sure. so I'd love, I'd love to just, uh, pick, pick your brain and, and kind of introduce other people to the same sense of, of awe and wonder that I felt while listening to you kind of dive into this very, you know, scientific and still pretty esoteric topic. Right. Well, you know, as you sort of alluded to, um, we, uh, and by we, I mean just human beings in general, are still learning um, um, about um, our quote-unquote microbiome. So first, let's just start off by kind of defining what that refers to. That The microbiome refers to the uh, complex uh, and diverse population of bacteria that uh, live in our colons. And it strikes me that I need to just uh, back up just even a little bit more to to help people understand how our bodies work because I think 
most people, when they think about human digestion, have a basic um, idea that, you know, we eat a meal, it goes into our stomach, where it's sort of, you know, turned into a liquid, and then it passes into the small intestine, where we absorb nutrients, and um, and then we eventually get rid of um, everything that's left over. But that's really not how things um, work, and it's certainly not how uh, they're supposed to work. And and what I mean by that is that there are three major organs of digestion. There's the stomach, of course, and the small intestine, but then there's also our large intestine. And um, for human beings, the large intestine is a very large organ um, uh, that um, uh, does or should be doing a lot for us. Um, now, what I what I learned in uh, in biology in the 1980s, the last time I studied it seriously, was that the large intestine was basically like the the waste product system. That's where where everything that we don't need kind of goes out, and then the uh, the the water gets up, you know, re reuptaken, and and everything else is just sort of you know shooted on its way down down to the rectum and out into the wide world, right. and and there's nothing very interesting going on there. Yeah, and and that's actually not true, and that's not the way uh, uh, things work, or they're uh, and certainly not the way they're supposed to work. Um, I started off uh, uh, the lecture that you were referring to talking about the concept of food retention time, uh, if you recall. Yep. And and I and that refers to the amount of time a meal actually stays within our body before you know between the time we eat it and the time we eliminate what uh, the uh, whatever's left over. And uh, you know, whenever I start off talking about food retention time, one of the first things people kind of say is that, you know, well, how do I know uh, how long a, me a particular meal stays in my body because everything that comes out looks pretty much the same and. And so I, I rather glibly uh, tell people that the next time they eat whole kernel corn to just note what time they eat it and then note what time they see see it again. And typically, uh, if a person is eating a uh, good, healthy, plant-based diet, a meal will stay in our bodies an average of uh, 16 hours, sometimes depending if you eat like a lot of really uh, high-fiber raw food, it can pass through uh, in as little as 12 hours. But typically, it's about, we'll say, 16 hours. Well, what's interesting and important about that is that uh, a meal stays in our stomach about two hours or less. And then it passes into the small intestine. And uh, in humans, the small intestine averages 30 to 35 feet in length. Uh, and it actually passes through the entire length of the small intestine in uh, uh, two hours or less. So if you're starting off with um, a time frame of 16 hours, we've only accounted for two hours, I mean four hours, excuse me. And that means that for the remainder of that time, food is in the colon. And the reason it is in the colon for such an extended period of time is not that it's, that it's just supposed to be sitting there, but 
there is a population of bacteria in the colon that can actually act on um, plant fiber and break it down into a number of different compounds and even neurotransmitters that have very, very beneficial effects on our health and physiology. And so this, this, the, the microbiome refers to, as I said, that population of bacteria in our colon, but the makeup of um, the bacterial population is heavily influenced by the types of foods that we eat. And one of the reasons that um, people have been slow to discover uh, just how important uh, the uh, impact of the microbiome can be on our physiology is because for a very long time, um, people simply were not eating the right kinds of high-fiber foods and therefore didn't have the full effect or benefits of, um, of our mi microbiome. So because uh, people... Um, uh, for so long, we're eating, um, you know, primarily uh, or largely animal food-based diets that simply uh, didn't have enough plant fiber in them. Um, number one, those uh, diets that are, are, are heavily uh, focused on animal foods tend to cause us to have a bacterial population that actually resembles um, the type of bacteria found in the uh, colons of of uh, uh, meat-eating animals, carnivorous animals. And the issue with that is that those types of uh, bacteria are not very good or very efficient at breaking down plant fiber. Um, and their um, actions are more putrefactive as opposed to fermentation. Now, what does fermentation refer to? Well, um, again, as we discussed in the lecture, bacterial fiber, I mean, not bacterial, but plant fibers are made up of cellulose. And cellul um, cellulose uh, compounds called lignans, and you have um, a, um, a range of different types of fibers, what are called water-soluble fibers. These are um, um, cellulose or, uh, yeah, well, um, uh, plant fibers that dissolve in water but are not absorbed uh, um, uh, into our bodies as, as such. And then you have the more traditional types of uh, plant fibers, which are the insoluble uh, bran and uh, celluloses and hemicelluloses that we are, are very familiar with. Um, and those, when, are, those are basically the, like instead of plants having bones, they have the insoluble fiber, right, for structure. Correct, um, because, uh, you know, as you alluded to, plants don't have bones. And so the way that they uh, stiffen their tissues and resist gravity is that every plant cell is surrounded by a cell wall, and that cell wall is made up of uh, uh, cellulose and other uh, indigestible fibers. And while um, we mammals don't make enzymes that can break down um, cellulose, bacteria do. And so that's why animals that eat high-fiber diets have come up with two uh, different um, um, approaches to um, digesting plant fiber. There are the um, ruminants like cows and antelope and and uh, animals of that nature that are what are called foregut fermenters. And, and what that means is 
that um, they have in their uh, uh, first stomachs, and this is why they have multiple stomachs. Uh, in the uh, first stomach, they have a population of bacteria that um, release enzymes that will digest uh, cellulose. And so what a cow does, for instance, is it will go and uh, basically scoop up a stomach full of hay or grass, swallow it, let it soak up those bacterial enzymes, and then it brings it back up and chews that food to mix it with those bacterial enzymes. And that's what chewing the cud is all about. It's about mixing the uh, um, grass with the bacterial enzymes so the process of digestion can take place. Then when it swallows um, the food again, it goes into a separate stomach where um, the, the uh, grass is is broken down and then it passes into their small intestine where it's, uh, uh, the nutrients are, are absorbed. And this process of foregut um, fermentation uh, that you find in the ruminants is actually a very efficient process. And that's why um, the, um, um, if you see a fresh um, cow patty or the stool from uh, a cow or another ruminant, it's liquid uh, because they, they're able to break down um, um, most of the fiber in the food that they eat. But uh, other plant eaters like horses and rabbits and primates like we humans, we are what's called hindgut fermenters. And that's because we typically uh, eat plant foods that have a lot more nutrient uh, value. So we eat things like um, carrots and, and grains and um, uh, legumes, uh, foods that have a very high nutrient co content, and it would be inefficient to try and ferment those foods um, uh, initially because the bacteria would use up most of, those, uh, most of the energy in the food. So instead, we um, uh, uh, ingest the meal, we uh, liquefy it in the stomach, pass it into the um, small intestine, and absorb all of the readily available nutrients. And then the leftover plant fiber goes into the colon, where the, pop the bacteria in the colon then start uh, fermenting those, uh, uh, the leftover fiber, and they break it down into a number of different compounds um, that can be absorbed. And these, uh, um, part of these compounds are called uh, short-chain fatty acids, and there, there's a, a, a number of different short-chain fatty acids, and we can talk about what they do um, for our physiology. But they also convert some of those fibers into actual neurotransmitters that are absorbed and can then um, go to the um, brain and influence um, our mood and the way that we actually think. Um, other compounds are made that actually stimulate and boost our immune function and help reduce our risk of developing infections and cancers and so forth. There are uh, important uh, antioxidant compounds that help reduce the overall level of inflammation in our bodies. And um, they also um, modify uh, a number of compounds called phytoestrogens and lignans, which help block things like breast cancer or reduce the risk for breast cancer in women and prostate cancer in men. 
So the actions of the uh, um, bacteria in our colons are they're just amazing, and they're and they're varied, and uh, and they have a really profound effect on our physiology. So now, can, can I can I interrupt for a second just sure. for a question? So you said it took us a long time to figure this out, basically because everybody Western medicine was studying was eating a, a high animal foods kind of low fiber diet. So correct. So can you tell? Do you know how we started discovering this? Did we start looking at like, you know, pe- rural villagers in southern Africa, or or did we start suddenly get a huge population of, of whole food plant based <laughs> eaters? Like how how did well, how did this come about? This rev- this sure. incredible revolution in understanding how we do the most basic thing we do, which is eat. Right. Well, one of the biggest clues was that uh, researchers noticed that there were marked differences in uh, disease risk between um, populations in Western countries where uh, we consu- we uh, typically consume a diet that's very heavily, uh, um, uh, very high in animal foods versus uh, less developed countries or what are referred to as less developed countries where people eat a primarily plant-based diet. And what uh, what became instantly clear was that the risk for um, the major cancers that we see in Western countries, such as breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, and even um, pancreatic and, and uh, um, other cancers like leukemias and, and uh, in uh, children, uh, uh, brain cancers and so forth, that in countries where people typically eat a plant-based diet and a diet that is um, uh, low in animal foods, there are uh, they, they have a much lower risk for developing these types of cancers. And even within the United States, um, there were there are these uh, longitudinal studies that have looked at Seventh Day Adventists, who uh, Seventh Day Adventists are uh, is a, a, denom- a Protestant denomination where the church encourages its members to become uh, vegetarian or vegan. And uh, as a result, approximately half of the members of that denomination are um, either vegetarian or vegan. And again, when um, researchers looked at some of the evidence, they found that the vegetarians and vegans, again, had much lower rates of heart disease, diabetes, cancers, and so forth. And so um, it it became uh, fairly obvious that the um, uh, important variable was what they were eating and the fact that they had, one, eliminated animal foods from their diet, but also, uh, equally importantly, that they were eating a uh, um, high-fiber plant-based diet. And, and so that's what kind of clued people into the importance of plant fibers uh, in, in our overall health. Right. And Although... Although, like Dennis Burkett was writing about fiber right in this in the sixties and seventies, but his basic uh, and even even uh, earlier than that, you're, you're uh-huh. absolutely right. Um, but his his view was that like fiber is like a broom, right? Which is what I learned. That yeah, it's uh-huh. it's like, like like this idea of of like so much incredible stuff happens in the colon, and and it happens in such you know sort of efficient and elegant and almost miraculous ways. Correct. You know, that, 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 you know, that there are, I've heard people say like, we have a second brain in our gut 
in in some ways that that's I, I I understand why people say that because as I, I alluded to before. Uh, the bacteria actually manufacture a number of bioactive neurotransmitters that affect, you know, not only how we think but our overall mood and lowers the risk for things like depression and anxiety disorders. Uh, there's even evidence that it can help to ameliorate symptoms of schizophrenia and other psychiatric uh, disorders. Um, but you're absolutely right that the, the earliest researchers that noticed that um, – People who consumed high-fiber diets were at lower risk for, say, colon cancer and breast cancer and so forth. Um, their assumption was that the primary effect of the fiber was, as you said, sort of like a uh, biological broom, meaning that it would sweep the colon clean and um, dilute any toxic compounds and help remove the, things like cholesterol and other toxins. Uh, potentially toxic substances from our bodies, and that that was the way in which it reduced disease risk. And there's no question that um, diets that are high in fiber actually uh, um, improve uh, transit times through the, the uh, large intestine and can help uh, get rid of potentially toxic compounds. But as people studied, uh, began to really study the interaction between bacteria and fiber and all of the things that the bacteria di uh, were doing, it became clear that the um, effect of the fiber went far beyond uh, this sort of, you know, biological um, broom effect, uh, to just uh, use that expression, but that they were actually creating uh, a number of really important compounds that changed our physiology in very beneficial ways. And the one thing I want to allude to before we go too far is there's even research now that um, is that's being done in infants um, that is showing that that uh, in in mothers um, who who uh, eat high fiber diets that they pass along to their babies and infants um, a, a, a bacterial population that actually reduces the risk for uh, behavioral problems, mood disorders, and so forth. And I, I just want to say at the outset that I am not an expert in sort of the pediatric uh, aspects of of, uh, of the microbiome, and um, a lot of that is a lot of that research is in its infancy, uh, no pun intended. But that I just wanted to be clear to people that the benefits of being plant-based start from the very beginning. Um, and as we discover and learn more about how um, our, um, um, our in, you know, the bodies of infants and, and, and toddlers interact with uh, the fiber in their diets, we will uh, get a, a deeper understanding of that. Um, but um, with respect to adults, for instance, I alluded to um, these uh, breakdown products of fiber called short-chain fatty acids. And... Um, there are four principal short-chain fatty acids that are produced uh, when the bacteria in our colons um, uh, ferments or break down fiber. Uh, the first is a four-carbon compound that's called butyrate. And it turns out that the cells in make, that line the colon, that uh, uh, make up the uh, mucosa uh, or, or um, uh, barrier, uh, um, 
in the colon, they, you know, most of the cells in our body prefer to extract their energy from our bloodstream. So, you, you, you know, we eat food, we break it down into uh, various uh, forms of energy, and it's absorbed into the bloodstream, and then cells will pull out that energy from the bloodstream and use it to uh, um, do all of the things that they do. Well, it turns out that the cells that make up the colon prefer to extract their energy from the breakdown products of fiber fermentation. And that, in fact, colonic cells prefer to use butyrate or the, uh, the 4-carbon short-chain fatty acid produced by the bacteria in the colon as their primary energy source. Well, why is that important? It's important because when we have high levels of butyrate in the colon, then the cells that actually make up the uh, colonic mucosa are very healthy. They uh, bond, they hold on to each other very tightly, and they can prevent bacteria and um, inflammatory uh, toxins and bacterial compounds from being absorbed from the colon into our bloodstream. But when, in fact, there is not enough butyrate, then those cells cannot um, uh, uh, sort of bond to each other very tightly, and you get what's called leaky gut syndrome. So instead of the cells holding on to each other very tightly, like, say, uh, bricks in a, in a brick wall, um, the, the, the um, grout between the, the individual cells or bricks becomes uh, uh, porous and defective, and then bacteria and bacterial compound can actually squeeze in uh, between those cells, get into our bloodstream, where they increase inflammation, um, they can actually uh, uh, cause actual disease such as um, uh, um, you know, bacterial infections, and also um, protein residues from uh, the food that we eat can also get absorbed where our immune system will recognize them as foreign compounds and make antibodies against uh, these foreign proteins that can sometimes cross-react with the proteins in our own tissues and cause what are called autoimmune diseases. Um, so uh, that's just one way in which the, the um, uh, um, fermentation products can, can really uh, improve our physiology. So, so for that that auto, that autoimmune reaction, a lot of people, you know, say they're 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 allergic to some food. It's very it's very often like a plant food, right? So they so they're, the people blame the plant food. Like I have a soy allergy, or I can't have you know gluten or something like that. Right. You, you say that the, the it may be that like the protein from that food may have been the thing that got triggered, but it's not the plant's fault in the first place, right? There's a, no, there's a higher no, level no, etiology. Not at all. Not at all. And, and I want to I separate out the uh, gluten allergy from, um, uh, from some of these other putative uh, um, you know, allergies that people have. I, I, one, of the, one of the fundamental points I want to make is that um, you – Things like gluten allergy, peanut allergies, and, and uh, uh, so forth are more common in Western countries than they are in, again, uh, um, so-called less developed societies. And what um, um, 
medical researchers are discovering is that part of the problem is that uh, in Western countries, because women don't like to breastfeed or because they are um, trying to work at the same time they're raising a family, uh, they tend to um, not breastfeed long enough and they start introducing solid food um, to their uh, babies uh, and infants really before they should. And, and that, that is a problem because um, babies are born with immature digestive systems. And what I mean by that is that uh, a human adult has five different protein digesting enzymes, which allow us to, to basically break any protein we ingest in, down into its individual amino acids. Well, because babies are supposed to uh, passively absorb antibodies, which are proteins, from their mothers, uh, infants only have two or three out of the um, uh, full complement of protein-digesting enzymes, and that's so that they cannot break down their mother's antibodies, but they absorb those antibodies intact. And that's fine if, as long as an infant is only uh, uh, um, taking in breast milk during its first year uh, of life. But what happens when people start to feed these babies um, uh, either um, um, cereals or uh, even cow's milk is that the infants absorb large protein fragments from the cereals and and it can be gluten proteins that their immune system recognize as a foreign protein and can make antibodies against it that can then actually result in uh, a gluten allergy um, uh, or um, even more uh, ominously in the case of the proteins that are found in cow's milk they break uh, bovine serum albumin down into uh, protein fragments that are then absorbed antibodies are made against those cow uh, milk proteins that can actually cross-react with insulin-producing cells in the pancreas, and they kill those insulin-producing cells, and the, and the child will go on to develop uh, uh, what's called type 1 or um, um, early-onset diabetes, and uh, which is an autoimmune disease where they no longer make any insulin. And that's one of the reasons that the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that um, children are not exposed to cow's milk until they are more than a year old. I personally would recommend that you, they not be exposed to cow's milk at all uh, because it's a foreign substance that we do not need. But um, So I, I just want to make the point that uh, some of the the allergies or food allergies that we see in Western countries um, are because we simply don't breastfeed our infants as long as we should. Uh, and if we did, that uh, the incidence of these allergies would, would go way down. Right. So there's said that. Can I, can I jump in again? Oh, absolutely. Because it's, you know, I, um, I, I'm fascinated by the science and I hope, I hope listeners are as well, but I also want to keep, you know, jump back to kind of bigger, bigger themes um, sure. Which it sounds like, like these these little critters, these these bacteria that we have sort of you know co co evolved with to to um, to to exist healthily. Mm -hmm. It's like you know they're, they're what's striking me is first of all how 
crucial they are, even though we didn't Absolutely. we didn't know it until recently, and how vulnerable. And it's it's almost like like it's it's almost a little bit scary. Like everything everything has to be right for us to be okay. We can't just pick and choose. So you know, like it's like when I look at it, it's like this amazing design. It's like you know we're we're in an orchestra playing you know Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And we decide, you know, we can just take out every fourth measure, and I'm sure it'll be fine. Uh, yeah, and and that's that's not the case. You know, I mean, you're absolutely right that that it, it's a sense. It, it um, we need the full complement of the uh, of the uh, bacteria that are supposed to populate our colon in order to be uh, in optimal health. But the thing that I want people to understand is that. This is not hard to accomplish because if we're eating a very high-fiber plant-based diet, you will uh, take in all of the compounds you need to have that healthy bacterial population. You know, a lot of people think that they have to uh, constantly take these probiotics. That is really uh, a bunch of nonsense. And, in fact, studies have shown that when people ingest probiotics, in the absence of uh, of a disease state, the bacteria that they ingest don't hang around for very long at all. And that um, what's more important for having a, a healthy bacterial population are not probiotics, but what are called prebiotics. And what are the prebiotics? They are healthy, whole uh, food, plant-based fibers. So it's the fiber that you get from eating whole plant foods. Yeah, I was and I was talking. Can, yeah, I was talking with uh, Dr. Pam Popper um, about this because I'd read a whole bunch of studies saying, "Oh, probiotics don't really help," and mm -hmm. and she, you know she she was pointing out they don't. Like if you they don't. if you give people pro like you know, and she she's a big believer in taking them, but in in the kind of reductionist model of research that we do, you just give people probiotics, and you don't. Of course, you can't change their diet because that would be a, a confounding variable, and it's like, you know, you you, you attract you, you you bring a whole bunch of ladybugs and put them in your garden, but there's nothing for them to eat, and they fly away, and you go, well, exactly. I guess ladybugs exactly. don't help. Yeah, I mean, and and uh, and you know, and that's that. I mean, that's actually a, a fairly good analogy, and because if you if you take in probiotics, but you aren't giving the bacteria what they need to survive, they're not going to stick around. They're basically going to die off and be eliminated from the body, and that's why prebiotics or the plant fibers are so important. Because what we know is that when you have a uh, a diet that is made up of a wide variety of plant fibers that that will um, actually selectively promote the growth of beneficial bacteria, and that and that those bacteria will then um, hang around and uh, populate the colon. It, I mean, I guess one way you can think of it is that if you had uh, um, a, uh, um, a a zoo, and I'm not in any way advocating the zoos, I'm just using this as an example, where you had a bunch of carnivores and a bunch of of uh, herbivores, and you selectively fed all of the animals meat, the plant eaters would die off, and the, carn and the meat eaters would survive. But if you then turned around and start feeding them nothing but 
plant foods, the meat eaters would die off, and the and the uh, uh, plant eaters would 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 uh, survive. And it's the same way in our colons. When we have a diet that has a lot of uh, plant fiber in it, it promotes the growth and establishment of the healthy bacteria that actually can ferment fiber and produce these very healthy beneficial compounds that we've been talking about. Great. Can you say a little bit more about the link between the the, the microbiome health and mood and mental health? Sure. Well, again, um, our our understanding of this interaction is 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 again still in its relative infancy, meaning that we're just beginning to appreciate uh, how important this is. But one of the, I mean, th- there are a number of different ways uh, in which uh, bacteria affect our, our mental health. Number one, um, as I said, the uh, bacteria manufacture an, uh, um, a number of important antioxidant compounds that help reduce inflammation in the body. Furthermore, by promoting um, healthy population of the bacteria, you essentially eliminate the uh, unhealthy uh, types of bacteria that create uh, toxic compounds that um, uh, uh, upregulate inflammation. Um, it it turns out that um, plant fibers, as I said, bacteria can. Um, um, use these plant fibers for their energy. And in the process of using them for energy, they uh, break the plant fibers down into these beneficial compounds, as I um, discussed, called short-chain fatty acids. Well, if you're eating a diet that is primarily uh, made up of uh, animal uh, uh, foods, that ha- and animal foods, as we know, have no fiber in them, you end up with... a um, um, a colon that is full of basically leftover protein residues. And protein residues cannot be fermented. They can only be, uh, 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 they, they rot, they putrefy. So can you, what, what does that mean when, it's, when you say it putrefies or rots? What's the difference between that and fermentation? Well, again, fermentation, uh, you, you have long, a long chain of, of, of plant fiber that, the bacteria alter in ways that they can extract energy from, but then they create these things called short-chain fatty acids, which are, our bodies can then absorb and actually uh, utilize for energy, and um, um, they affect our physiology, as I said, in beneficial ways. They also can modify these plant phyto uh, compounds uh, into neuro. Uh, transmitters that can then be absorbed and and help our brains function better, but protein residue can't cannot be uh, converted into um, anything other than a toxic compound. Like uh, uh, they have names like putrescine and cadaverine, and it's the things that that um, if you've ever uh, and most of us have smelled a dead body or a a dead animal that has a very foul odor, and that's because of these toxins that are created when protein residues are acted on by bacteria. Um, I mean, it, it's it's kind of difficult to explain without going into very complicated uh, uh, the the biochemistry of it. But the bottom line is 
that protein residues cannot be converted into um, uh, short-chain fatty acids. They are uh, rotted in ways or or, um, uh, chemically changed in ways that they create toxins, not anything beneficial. I mean, that's that's the simplest way to explain it. And it turns out that when that studies have shown that when people have diets that are high in animal proteins, that when bacteria act on those uh, protein residues, they create a number of toxic compounds uh, uh, like cresole and, uh, as I said, cadaverine and, and putrescine. And, and when these things are absorbed, they actually negatively affect our uh, mental functioning and they uh, increase the risk for depression and anxiety. But even more importantly, um, the the compound cresol actually um, interferes with the um, ability of, of uh, uh, nerve cells to make a compound called uh, myelin. And we know that myelin is the insulation that wraps around uh, the axons of of cells in our central nervous system and help them function normally. And you can think of uh, the um, uh, myelin as the, uh, elect- the rubber insulation that you see on any electrical cord. And you know that if you go through and you scrape off the uh, uh, insulation on an extension cord or the uh, uh, plug that plugs into your TV or toaster, that if that insulation is gone, it will start to spark. The appliance will not work properly because the electrical signals cannot travel up and down that cord in an efficient fashion. And something very similar happens in the brain and the central nervous system when the myelin sheath is uh, interrupted because we are eating foods that create toxins as opposed to uh, help uh, uh, create uh, a healthy uh, um, central nervous system, I, and and I, I, you know, I realize that that that's a simplified explanation, but um, the the biochemistry gets very complicated. Right. Well, it it kind of makes sense, you know, from a sort of cause and effect perspective, I would sure. think. So sure. if you know, if you're if you're a, a a paleolithic human and you're used to living on all these plants, and all of a sudden you start getting a lot of meat. And your body knows that's no good for you. Like it would probably tell the brain, "Hey, let's let's slow this bugger down a little bit. Let's let's uh, let's cre- let's create a a, um, a negative feedback loop so they're not so able to hunt, right? To maybe depress them a little bit so we can go back to uh, to fruits and berries, right? Well, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I, I actually don't think it. it, it it's well, number one. I I I want people to understand that that prior to the uh, uh, creation of modern hunting weapons, humans never ate a diet that was primarily animal foods outside of uh, people living in Arctic areas where they could kill these giant animals that would then basically uh, not rot away because they're in a giant freezer. Um, and, And throughout the vast majority of human history, we were eating a diet that was comprised primarily of plant foods. Um, in fact, um, there, there are studies looking at what are called corporalites or fossilized uh, feces from Paleolithic peoples, and it shows that these people were eating tons of plant foods, not meat. 
so the 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 phenomenon of humans eating large amounts of meat is actually very recent in human history and what 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 ends up happening is when we do this we end up absorbing a lot of of uh, as i said from our colons because we're not providing the right substrates for the bacteria there we absorb a lot of toxic compounds and it manifests itself in a variety of different diseases um but i, I also wanted to, to, to uh just kind of mention that studies have shown that that uh the the more inflammatory compounds that a person has in his or her body the higher your risk of depression but also of developing dementia such as alzheimer's and so forth um and again we know that this is at least mediated in part by the higher levels of inflammation that people have when they don't get enough fiber but it also uh is likely due to the fact that that bacteria are not making the important neurotransmitters that our brains need. And then, as I said, the, the uh, toxic compounds that are created interferes with the ability of the um, uh, nerve cells to insulate themselves properly, and that will result in uh, uh, psychiatric diseases like depression and anxiety and, and so on. Um, but you know, I can. I, I'd like to talk about short-chain fatty acids for a little bit uh, more because I talked about the four-carbon short-chain fatty acid butyrate that is really important for um, the health of uh, colonic cells. It's also been shown to modify the DNA in colon cells uh, in ways that reduce the risk of developing colon cancer. Well, the next short-chain fatty acid... Is wait, 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 wait. Sorry, i got to stop you there. It, it modifies the, D, the DNA in our bodies? So this, this, Absolutely. So these little critters that we invite, hopefully, to live in our bodies produce compounds, if we feed them right, that changes our DNA and makes us more resistant to cancer. Ways. Absolutely. How does it do that? Well, I mean... Uh, I thought again, I thought DNA does doesn't doesn't what change. What called epigenetic effects. In other words, they make compounds that attach to the proteins that actually surround our DNA, um, and the and they modify those proteins in ways that uh, determine how the DNA genes are um, uh, transcribed. It, 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 people used to think that um, um, DNA was set in stone, but what people are now, um, again, we're understanding is that the, the, the DNA in our chromosomes are, are wrapped around these proteins called histone proteins. And it turns out that the histone proteins are what are modified by the foods that we eat. And that when you're eating a plant-based diet, it modifies those histone proteins in ways that will suppress cancer-causing genes, but upregulate beneficial genes that promote overall health. And I meant, a, a while ago, I mentioned the effect on the uh, 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 central nervous system cells that make the myelin, which insulate our neurons. Well, it turns out that the toxic compounds that are created by um, the putrefaction of animal protein residues actually um, modify the way the uh, DNA in what are called oligodendrocytes, which are the myelin-producing cells in the, the uh, central nervous system, that they turn off their ability to transcribe the genes which tell them to make myelin. 
So that's one of the ways that it interferes with with uh, the insulation of, of our central nervous system. And as a result, we end up with clinical psychiatric disease, uh, as well as increasing our risk for ultimately going on to develop Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia. Um, okay. so, let, let, the, yeah, so let me let me let you get back to the short chain fatty acids. So. Right. So the 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 another really important short chain fatty acid is a three carbon short chain fatty acid called propionate. And the reason propionate is so amazing is that propionate actually uh, uh, is absorbed and travels to the liver, and it inhibits an enzyme called HMA-CoA reductase, uh, HMG-CoA reductase. And the reason that uh, enzyme is so important is that is the uh, rate-limiting uh, enzyme in the production of cholesterol. So when you say yeah. rate-limiting, what, what do you mean by that? Meaning that it is the primary uh, um, uh, uh, enzyme that uh, um, governs co uh, cholesterol synthesis. So it's like the part, the part of the um, the assembly line that, sh that that no matter how fast everybody else is going, if that if that one goes slow or fast, that affects the the production, the end product. Exactly, and 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 again, what's what's really important about that is that. Uh, drugs like um, Lipitor and Zocor or statin drugs, that's the enzyme they target to decrease um, production of cholesterol. Um, they all inhibit uh, HMA-CoA reductase. Uh, wait, well, so, so HMA, what is it again? Um, it is, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, HMG-CoA reductase. HMG? HMG-CoA reductase, that's the uh, enzyme that um, Lipitor, Zocor, Crestor, Mevacor, all of those drugs target that enzyme and, uh, and basically shut it down, and that's the way in which they reduce cholesterol in the body. Well, the problem is, as we know, all of these statin drugs don't only affect HMG-CoA reductase, they also affect other enzyme systems in our body and can create, you know, muscle wasting and uh, a number of other uh, unpleasant side effects. Well, propionate inhibits HMG-CoA reductase and does not have those unpleasant uh, uh, negative side effects. Uh, we have other drugs such as uh, um, Lopid and so forth that can reduce triglyceride levels in, uh, in humans. Propionate also reduces triglyceride levels. And, um, and, propionate, and then we have, when it comes to diabetes, there's a, a drug called um, uh, metformin, which reduces uh, glucose production by the liver and helps to control blood sugar levels. Well, propionate also does the same thing. It, in, it decreases glucose production by the liver the same way metformin or glucophage does. So the point is that if we are eating a high-fiber diet, the bacteria in our colon will produce these natural compounds that can do the exact same thing that many of our drugs do without the negative side effects. And part of the reason that people need these drugs is that they are simply not eating the right foods. 
Well, it's, it's like, you know, you, you, you've been to my house, you've seen my garden. It's like, Absolutely. Like, like walking through the garden and then slogging through the woods in order to make it to the grocery store to buy like kale. When, when I just walked through the garden, all I had to do was, right. was stop and pick it. Right. Like, Absolutely. so, so, so we, we, when, we, when, when people need uh, metformin or, uh, or a statin, it's, it's they don't we don't we don't need it. It's it's we're not we're not, our bodies are not right. We we would likely not need these drugs, and that's why um, we see that when people change from a typical Western style uh, meat heavy uh, diet to a let's say a vegan diet, which is uh, comprised only of of whole plant foods, that their cholesterol levels will drop by over a hundred points. Uh, people have been able to cure their diabetes by becoming vegan. And again, it's because the uh, beneficial effects of the fiber and other plant compounds help uh, correct the physiologic derangements that we see in our bodies from eating uh, the, uh, the wrong types of food. So again, it, it's, it's just so, I can't emphasize enough, the importance of the interaction between uh, um, the bacteria in our colons and the fiber and foods that we eat to help create uh, um, overall health and promote overall health. Uh-huh. Any, any other short-chain fatty acids that you wanted to cover? Because those, those two well, are, are yeah, amazing. And well, the, the, the other uh, important one is a two-carbon short-chain fatty acid called acetate. And we know that acetate actually helps um, uh, is used by our muscle cells um, instead of uh, glucose, which means that the amount of glucose stored in our body lasts much longer, and that's important because our brains only use glucose for its metabolism. And it's thought that one of the uh, means by which um, we uh, our body decides when it's hungry is by monitoring how much glucose we have on board. And if, in fact, uh, um, um, our glucose stores are getting low, the body signals, hey, you have to go out and eat because obviously the brain only wants glucose. But because uh, too often what we are eating is uh, a low-fiber, low-carbohydrate uh, diet that is high in fat, we don't adequately replete our glucose stores. Furthermore, we don't have the fiber uh, to create the uh, acetate, which um, will allow our glucose stores to last longer. And as a result, we're basically constantly hungry because our body is constantly trying to get us to uh, ingest more complex carbohydrate and more glucose so that our brains will be happy. Hmm. So the brain is sort of the rate-limiting factor for our desire for glucose. Well, absolutely, because... Every day, um, 25% of the energy that your body uh, uh, burns up is used by the brain alone. And that's pretty amazing because the brain is only about 3% of your total body weight, but it uses 25% of the energy that you burn every day. That just, that's how extremely metabolically active the brain is. And the brain uses exclusively glucose. So it's really important that we keep our glucose stores uh, up because if you've ever seen a, a person with diabetes whose blood sugar is too low, they become stuporous, they become confused, um, and um, if, it's, uh, if the uh, 
uh, blood sugar, if the glucose level falls low enough, they can actually have a stroke or go into a coma. So it's extremely important that our bodies keep our glucose levels uh, within the normal range, and that's uh, uh, that's why um, when those levels start to fall, the brain signals, "Hey, it's time to go eat something." But again, if we were eating a um, uh, a whole food plant based diet, not only would we have um, uh, very uh, um, uh, high glucose stores, but our bodies would also be making a lot of these short-chain fatty acids that would keep us from becoming hungry. Right. And, uh, and that's, again, another reason that people who eat plant-based diets uh, tend to have fewer um, uh, problems with obesity and uh, uh, so forth. Right. So in the, in the few minutes we have left, <clears throat> you've made a really strong case for the importance of eating plant-based, high-fiber foods. What what if someone's listening to this and they've been eating differently? Like all do they is all we need to do is to to switch, you know, cuz I know I know there's there's a lot of stuff we haven't talked about like, you know, like antibiotics both in sure. in, in our food supply and in, you know, the animal feed. <laughs> Um, that you know, so that there's lots of ways in which that we, in which we can mess up our microbiome. What what's the what's what, what's the uh, what, what's the what's the prescription? Well, the, you know, it 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 is really really simple, um, uh, Howard. It's it's simply um, uh, deciding to eliminate animal foods from our diet. But but I, I guess I do want to. Uh, uh, um, give one caveat, and and that is that, uh, you know, I've talked to people in the past and said, oh, you know, I tried to go plant-based, but I was hungry all the time. And so I asked them, well, what were you eating? And they say, oh, I was eating a lot of salads and a lot of, you know, broccoli. And and while those foods are very important and very necessary um, uh, for us to eat, they are primarily water and fiber. We also need to be sure that we're eating things like legumes, which are beans, peas, lentils, and grains, such as, you know, whole uh, grain rice and, and whole grain, you know, um, wheat and barley and so forth. Uh, and then our root vegetables like yams and potatoes and so forth, because these are the plant foods that have enough calories and enough uh, protein to keep our body well-fed um, um, and well-stocked with all the nutrients we need so that we aren't hungry and that we are very, very healthy. So I would just encourage, you know, uh, if there's someone out there, and I hope there will be, who realizes, you know what, I need to change my diet, that you would change to a whole food, uh, plant-based diet, that you would make sure that uh, you're eating your legumes and your grains on a regular basis and that you're always having a source of fresh vegetables and, and raw salads and green leafy vegetables. Gotcha. So if, if, but the critters aren't there, right? So, so we've been eating a lot of meat and we've taken a lot of antibiotics. Like how, where, how do they get there back, back to our stomachs and how do we, how do we make sure, sure. we get the right ones? Well, what, 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 uh, the, the interesting thing is that you will have some of the bacteria in your colon. It's just that they aren't the predominant species because they haven't been receiving the type of foods that they need to uh, really multiply and become the predominant strains. But if you start consuming that whole food, plant, you know, high-fiber diet, 
that is going to selectively promote the growth of the beneficial bacteria. Uh, now, some people might say that, well, you can also take some uh, healthy probiotics to, uh, um, you know, to, to help kind of get a healthy population established. And if someone is making a, a dietary change and they want to, uh, you know, temporarily uh, take in some of the uh, probiotics to help get that healthy population established, I think that that's fine. But um, you don't need to continually take these probiotics because, uh, again, as you eat the uh, high-fiber foods, that's going to promote the growth of the healthy bacteria. Gotcha. And, and as I said, I, you know, personally, I don't really think that you need to even take the probiotics because just by eating the right types of foods and the healthy, uh, the healthy bacteria will be uh, 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 promoted, uh, their growth will be promoted, and bacteria grow so fast, it will, it, it will be a matter of, of a few days when, and you will have the healthy uh, bacteria uh, 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 in your colon. Uh, the, um, so it, 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 it's really not that important to take probiotics. Gotcha. So uh, in closing, what's, what's for you, you've been studying this for a long time, what's the most sort of surprising or amazing or awe-inspiring part of this whole field of medicine and biology to you? Well, it, it's the, the one thing that, that became crystal clear to me is that, like you, Howard, when I was growing up, I was pretty much taught that our colon was just a place where stool was stored before we went to the bathroom and, and got rid of it. And what I've come to realize is that, no, in fact, our colon is an integral uh, part of our physiology. And what goes on in our colon is, not, uh, uh, is absolutely essential for optimal health, that you cannot be truly healthy if you are not uh, eating a whole food plant-based diet that promotes the uh, 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 growth of the most beneficial bacteria because these bacteria do all sorts of wonderful things that help uh, uh, stimulate our immune system, help our brains function um, uh, uh, better, and reduce the risk for all sorts of chronic diseases. Right on. All right. Well, this is... Uh... <laughs> I, I I hope someone you know what I love talking what I love talking to you is that there's there's so much sort of knowledge and authority that after hearing you talk I'm like well duh <laughs> of course this is this is the way this is the way things are like there's a lot of you know a lot of people talking science and and but but there's sort of a he said she said and then you know you can find people right. who will say the opposite but it's it's really hard to argue with you. <laughs> I I I, I <laughs> well, pity you know, I pity the paleo people who try. Man. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, and and I anticipate that that uh, many of your listeners are probably going to have a lot of questions about this because obviously this is this topic is 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 I mean we could talk about this for hours, and uh, you know if there are a number of of important questions that come up. Um, I would, I'd be more than happy to come back and do a second session to address some of the questions that you may receive from your listeners. Oh, that'd be awesome. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. You, you heard it here. I'll put, I'll mention it in the introduction and we'll take comments right on this blog page. So people who are, right, people awesome. who are listening, uh, what a, what a great offer. Thank you.
Yeah, no, it's it's just uh, it, again, it's just because there's so much to discuss and it's such an important topic, and I want to be sure that people really understand just how important their colon is and their and their uh, microbiome is for their health, and to really understand uh, how it works and how it can benefit us. Awesome. So now you you don't really have a website, right? No, not right now. I don't because uh, with work and. And all of the, you know, uh, I am a practicing uh, critical care physician. I just don't have the time to keep it up like uh, uh, it should, you know, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd like to. Right. So, no, I'm not doing that just yet. All right. Yeah, I, I feel like I want to get offline and contact you and offer to put one up for you. But for right, for right now, people can think of YouTube as your website. So if they do a search for, uh, yes. for Dr. Sure. Milton Mills. There videos on YouTube that, that I think people would find interesting and informative. Right, and you're not a soundbite kind of guy. They're like hour-long lectures. <laughs> the... No, no, that's that, that that's that's absolutely true. I tend to be very detailed. Awesome. Well, we used to drive my mother crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the, and the nice thing about the YouTubes is that they have slides, so people can actually see the names of things and uh, absolutely and slow it down. Absolutely. So I, I highly recommend those videos. If you know, if you're curious, if you're in doubt, and you like, you know, you're hearing like, you know. Time magazine covers about butter and stuff, and you're like, yeah, I don't know what makes sense. Like Dr. Milton Mills makes sense. Go find him on YouTube. <laughs> you know, share those, and the world will be a much happier and healthier place. Yeah, and, and don't believe that garbage in 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 uh, uh, oh my god in in Time magazine. That 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 was some of the most misleading and deceptive science. That that was the equivalent of the tobacco industry telling you that cigarettes don't cause cancer. That simply was not true. Right. And, uh, um, and it's hard, it's it, hard, it's hard for people to see that because, because they have I, I to, know. they have and to cut through I layers of jargon. Just a quick explanation of that. Oh, sure. Well, basically what they did was they looked at people who were eating say around 50% fat in their diet and compared them to people who were eating 30% fat and they did not see a difference in disease rates. And so they concluded that fat does not, uh, contribute to to excess disease. Well, the problem was that they did not look at people who were eating a really low-fat diet. And so you can think of it this way. Normal uh, air has 21% oxygen, okay? And if I put, uh, um, say, a lab animal into a, um, um, a container that only had 5% oxygen, and I put another lab animal into a uh, cage that had 10% oxygen and both of them died, would I be uh, justified in saying oxygen doesn't contribute uh, sustain life? <laughs> no. It's clear that the problem was there wasn't enough oxygen in either cage. And, and, and so it's kind of the reverse with the, the studies that they did looking at fat. Both groups were eating way too much fat. To see a reduction in the uh, uh, disease risk as a function of dietary fat, you have to get the amount of fat people are eating down to less than uh, 15 to 20%. When people drop below uh, 15 to 20%, you see a marked reduction in cancers and heart disease risk, diabetes, and so forth. And so that was the problem with the studies that uh, um, uh, people were looking at uh, in that article published in, in Time. Everybody was eating way more fat than they should have been eating.
All right. Well, that, that's a that's a really clear, simple explanation. I've I've given long explanations on that, but I think it, it leaves people confused. If, like if, if that's all you remember, like we're not looking at at, at, at healthy reference ranges. So all right. all bets Precisely. are off. Precisely. All right. Well. Dr. Milton Mills, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm looking forward to our, our next podcast interview, which will not be published here, but uh, so somewhere else on, uh, on on society and politics. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'll just I'll just tease yeah. I'll just tease that, but uh, it's 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 not for the Plant Yourself podcast, but some but uh, at some point um, we'll 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 share it when we figure out uh, where where it's going to go because you are a a powerful and passionate thinker and I love being challenged and educated by you so again thank you so much for taking the time today Howard it's always a pleasure man uh, always I wish we lived in the same city so we could hang out more yeah well um, there's hospitals down here you know so <laughs> <laughs> you can, we could probably find you a job alright <laughs> take care alright man listen you have a great evening you too bye bye alright bye bye I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 168. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 167 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not the weekly email newsletter, go to plantyourself.com and sign up top right. I include links to original articles, and I share recent episodes of my weekly Tribe Well TV show, and I let you know about other special events, webinars, classes, all that good stuff. Big thanks to Plant Yourself podcast patrons Leah Stoller, Victoria Dolomanova, Elspeth Feldman, the mysterious Michelle X, David Bizek, Jen Vilkanovsky, Tina Ahern, Tina Sharp, Christine Nielsen, Rachel Behrens, Melissa Cobb, Ellen Kennelly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Amanda Hatherley, Amy Good, Tammy Black, Barbara Whitney, Elizabeth Clifton, Dominic Marrow, Brittany Porter, Anthony Disson, Lynn McClellan, Kim Harrison. Sorry for clubbing a couple of those, but I appreciate and love you all the same. If you would like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media and via email. You can write a review on iTunes. Man, that helps so much. And you can become a patron by pledging a one-time <coughs> one amount. <coughs> you can help me get voice lessons by becoming a patron by pledging a one-time amount or ongoing gift to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. This coming weekend, I'll be at Plantstock up in Claverack, New York at the Esselstyn Farm. Hope to see some of you there. Come up, say hello. And we'll be doing a long run, 20 to 25 miles, starting in the wee hours of the morning on Saturday, August 20th. And you're welcome to join us. Or you can just welcome us back to the farmhouse and uh, feed us and hydrate us. In garden news, it's all winding down right now, except for the cucumbers. And now the fall crops are starting to come through. It's wonderful to, even in this heat, to have a promise of those cool weather crops that are going to go in the soups and stews to nourish us through the fall and winter and spring. That's it for this week. So as always, be well, my friends. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X. Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes of Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lassert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carl- Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, The Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch at Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Ashwa Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Lehman, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganshi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sawyer Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, and Sarah Johnson for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>